Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today, I'm talking with Ursa. She is one of the first organizers of the Ferry Creek Blockades, which became the largest civil disobedience act in the Canadian history. She shares her experience working alongside Native people as an activist and as a counselor, overcoming barriers of racism, and how she deals with her own white supremacy programming. I brought a song that I wanted to play. It's an uplifting song that when I left a blockade at Kaikus, the first big kind of vigil that we had, after the cops took Kaikus, we stopped on the road, a bunch of us, and we danced in the road. And I blasted this song out of my, out of my car. In this world of wonder Circle where we all belong Voice of a thousand tribes Tunza Circle where we all belong Where we all belong Pulse of the human heart Tunza Circle where we all belong Where we all belong Circle where we all are free Circle where we all belong Where we all belong Where we all belong What does this song do to you? Well, it evokes the innocence of the child who knows that everyone needs to be included. Everyone has an important piece to the puzzle for creating a better world. Every turn of the tide wave makes a circle where we all belong you put this song just after the cops took kaikus kaikus how do you see the police and the industry is part of what's going on in the world and the circle what's their role here oh <laughs> Yeah, well, their, their role is to, to test our faith and to challenge us to rise above our own personal interests and work together for the, the greater good. So they are important in helping us wake up. Yeah. What are your feelings toward this part of the circle? Ooh. Are you angry at them? Are you... 
Not really. Never, or it's changed? I remember when I was about 15 and 16, in those, you know, young teenage years, I was I was really angry in a very racist, middle-class uh, family. My dad was really a huge <laughs> fan of capitalism, and he was a nationalist. He was, yeah, he was, he was super bigoted. And I knew from probably, you know, the age of two that that was not my path. So, yeah, I, I figured that the state and the corporate agenda is, yeah, it's just delusion. It's ignorance, hatred, and greed. That's all it is, manifested in systemic institutions. When you say that like that, it sounds like you're judging them for being wrong. So how did you overcome the anger of, of this wrongness that doing happening in the world? I wouldn't say they're wrong. They're, they're unskillful. They're not awake. They're sleepwalking. They've been possessed by some ignorance that they don't want to wake up out of. And it's okay to be angry about it anyway. So, I, yeah, <laughs> anger's perfect. It's just, you know, taking action usually arises out of a sense of injustice and anger is part of that. Would you say most environmentalists are motivated by anger? And what's the place of anger in acting for justice? And yeah. yeah. I'll speak for myself. I kind of come from a place of heartbreak and deep sorrow and grief about how human beings are alienated, so deeply alienated from the natural world, even though we are completely dependent on the natural world for our lives. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't want to accept our limitations. We don't want to accept that we are animals. We don't want to accept our interdependency and our mortality. So that's a great, you know, that's a great uh, loss and uh, source of pain for, for everyone. But I've always felt that ever since yeah. I can remember. Yeah. So since you remember yourself, you're, you were like that. And how did it work with your dad that was completely the opposite from you? Well, like everyone... He was full of contradictions. Like he said, he said all this stuff and he devoted himself to making money. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, he did love being out in nature and going camping and eating apricots and being silly. But the child part of him, like most people, was so tormented and oppressed as a child, especially in, the, I guess he grew up during the Depression on a farm where all he could do was work from dawn till dusk in order to survive. So the child part just gets so downtrodden and terrified to play and to be joyful. And so, yeah, that's also what's driving climate change and, and global ecosystem collapse is that 
people have lost touch with their joy and with their creativity and their curiosities. And they don't have faith that there's something bigger at play here that, that's holding us all together. You made a little bit of logic leap between climate change and being joyful. Can you explain that, the connection? So I, yeah, the connection is that when we harm the earth and we don't take care of the soil and the mountains and the rivers and the air and the waters, mm-hmm. if we don't take care of that, it's just because We've lost touch with our interdependency with nature, and children are born with that innate sense of, well, first of all, dependency, and then slowly it, if there's a lot of secure attachment and unconditional love, then that child becomes totally engrossed in loving the world, loving animals, loving plants, learning about plants and animals. So climate change is just an, an outcome of our alienation from nature. So you're saying that the alienation from nature is the outcome of lo- losing connection with our joy. Yeah, our curiosity, Our playfulness, our need for play is as important as our need for food and water and love. So if we don't play as children, then we're not outside the box and we're trying to please everybody. And the paradigm we live in of corporate global capitalism is consumerism and consumerism is driving climate change. Our culture only supports a certain segment of the population, like artists and writers and musicians, to think outside the box and to act outside the box. Um, the rest of us have to be the drones and keep the whole machine going. But the moment that, you know, I don't know how far back in time we have to go, but before the agricultural process, cultures arose, the hunter-gatherer um, societies made tons of time for play and ritual and ceremony. Apparently on the West Coast, 50% of indigenous people's times was spent in ceremony, dance, and potlatch, uh, ritual mm-hmm. celebrations. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's a bit of a leap, but I think that we wouldn't be in this position right now if we were nurturing our children and living in a, a society that honors children and nature above and beyond uh, consumerism. So after so many years of disconnection from nature, Is there a way to reconnect? Yeah, definitely. So did your father reconnect with that or he died like that? He f- reclaimed some of that before he died. Definitely, he was given three months before he was going to pass away from a brain tumor. And one day, like, you know, he was like most 
people, terrified of intimacy. But he called me outside and we sat in the sun in the front yard. And he said, if I had a chance to live my life over again, I would do exactly what you've done. And I was only like eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> or I, was, I think I was 19. Wow. No, maybe I was 20 at the time. But by then I'd already lived in Central America for a year with indigenous people. And I'd already devoted three years of my life to building an intentional community for marginalized peoples on Vancouver Island. And yeah, I was living the dream that he, I guess, never thought he could break out of the confines and and do something different with his life. But I think he was proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like that, yes. Mm-hmm. that's a beautiful story and no doubt that he was proud of you and he was admiring you tell me about living with indigenous people how was it how did it happen how was it for you yeah I grew up the first six years of my life or five and a half on a mountain basically the side of a mountain just below Hollyburn Mountain in West Vancouver when it was mainly just forest I remember my older brother and sisters would go to school and then I would just head outside as soon as I possibly could to probably get away from my mother or maybe she was forcing me out the door. I don't know. But, you know, there were bears around and cougars probably. Cougars. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I would just spend uh, the day outside in the forest and I would go to this one tree and I'd sit down and I'd close my eyes. And then the next thing I knew, I was being led away by my Indian grandmother to a canoe and we would go down the Capilano River and then we'd go down and spend the day with the Capilano tribe. And I would learn how to weave baskets and make food and go fishing. And, and that, that was my life kind of for like about three years. And then at the end of the day, my mother or my siblings would have to drag me into the house. And then apparently they would ask me, well, what did you do today, Esther? And I'd tell them all these stories about being with my Indian family. <laughs> so I have no oh. idea where that came from. I think I was picking up on the ancestral uh, spirits in that forest because I was on the stolen land of the Capilano people. But... I knew from a very young age that I didn't belong really with my Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, Christian, white family. And yeah, I was an outsider. I was always an outsider, always a, a bit of an outlaw. How it was for you to be outsider in your own family? Oh, well, it, you really, at a very early age. Yeah, there was a lot of angst and confusion and doubt. A lot of self-doubt and a lot of wanting somewhat to fit in, but just never being able to fit in and follow in what through. way 
in, you know, being a worker, an employee, a wife, a consumer, a healthy person, a hetero person, none of that was really available to me. And, you know, it resulted in when I was thirteen, I started drinking alcohol, doing drugs. I didn't really stop drinking alcohol for like fifteen years or more. And um, yeah, I did some crazy drugs because I didn't love myself. Or I didn't feel loved. I didn't fit in, even with the with the other kids hardly that I was hanging out with. I was just listening to a interview with Buffy St. Marie this morning. She turned 80 this year. She's a Canadian Indigenous activist and and songwriter, musician. And she was adopted out. I think that it's a reality that in throughout the history of the human race, there's always been the outsider, the person who doesn't fit in. It's an archetype. And that person has a lot of choice points along the way. And if there's been enough love and support, then that outsider becomes a voice for what could be different, what could be better for society, because they know they don't fit in. They know that they don't belong. They don't want to belong. And if you belong, if you're, if you're an insider, then you have no reason to rebel. You have no reason to think about what it's like to be part of an oppressed group because you are the oppressor and you have the power and you don't need to think about other people's needs. But I really liked, again, Buffy St. Marie was saying there's there's a story, I don't know from what nation or tribe it comes from, but people were seen picking up something from the ground and the teacher asks the students, what do you think they're picking up? And the students guess, oh, wood for making a fire? And no, she said, it's actually dried buffalo manure. And you have to let it dry in order to use it as a fuel. You can't burn it if it's wet. But if it's dry, you can burn it and create light and heat. And it's the same with our emotions, especially of bitterness or guilt, anger, or rage, we have to let it sit, and we have to let it be, and we have to kind of, yeah, be patient, and allow that transformation to occur on its own, and then one day, all of that hurt, and pain, and confusion can become fuel for action, right action, skillful action in the world. If we're open to change and to shifting our consciousness, then that openness allows the elemental forces to change us. We don't have to do the work so much. We just have to allow life to have an influence on us instead of hiding away. So let's see if I understand. When you feel angry for injustice that happened to you or in the world and you allow the emotions to be and you open yourself to change, the transformation will occur 
almost on its own. There's a difference between choosing to let go and surrender and hiding away behind your money and your status and your power and your white skin. There's a huge difference. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people, okay. yeah, people going into denial about the human condition because they've never been taught how to deal with emotions and existential issues. So they hide behind what's yeah. convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen someone that changed, like your father, or have you seen more situations like this, that people were hiding and then transformed? I used to work as a creative arts therapist. I'll, I'll tell you a story. A woman came into my office with her daughter. They had escaped a domestic violence lifestyle with the father. And the daughter refused to talk. She hadn't spoken for about eight months. And she was oh. so traumatized. So the, the mother was, of course, very worried and upset. So what we did was we sat in the playroom with the mother and the daughter, and we just held silence. And I, I taught the mother how to do some breathing and relaxing, and we gave the daughter some toys. Well, not toys, some building materials, because I don't believe mm -hmm. in the word toys. I just gently reflected back to the child what she was doing. Oh, you're picking up the pink spoon and you're moving it over to the blue circle over there. After four sessions, that girl was talking nonstop because she stopped speaking because her mother was so traumatized and not dealing with her own emotions. I was seeing the mother as well on the side. But it was basically a matter of looking at that child needed time and space to heal whatever it was so that she could begin to speak again. And she needed her mother to be, be there, present, 100% present, not talking, just presence, just sending that child. In Buddhism, we call it metta, loving kindness. So that's maybe an yeah. example of how people need to be supported to just sit with the feelings and not react. Yeah, so the last example makes it really clear. So thank you for that. When you allow your feelings to be uh, and you're present with your feelings, it's very different than ignoring them, than putting them aside, than acting upon them or suppressing them. So yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> You were talking about your dad and how much he was affected by you and how much you were affected by him. What about your mom? My mother was pretty unhappy. She was a musician before she got married. Very musical and very loved poetry and literature and music. I wonder how it affected your choices in life and in becoming an activist. Well, you know, it, my mother's era was all for women was all about getting married and having children and keeping a very clean house and clean children and being very like a domesticated animal you know just kept inside and it took a lot for women in that time 
to break out of those rules. And most of the the great artists that we've, you know, that like say Emily Carr, she never got married. She never had children. She was an oddball. She was definitely an outsider in her family, always criticized because she didn't fit in. Same with my mother was nothing unusual. All the women, all the women in suburbia were um, mm-hmm. docile and subservient to their husbands. It's just another form of societal oppression, and it's called sexism and heterosexism. And did you get from watching your mom, did you learn something about yourself? Did it make you chose your path in life? Of course it did. I could see right through it. Yeah. As soon as my dad, as soon as we heard the car come in the driveway at five o'clock, whoa, we had to scatter and be invisible, run away. He was angry? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're loud and noisy and messy and... (laughs) Mm -hmm. (sighs) Kids. Yeah, kids. Yeah. You've mentioned living with indigenous people and indigenous community. How was it for you? I went to Central America for almost a year and lived with indigenous people in the Lake Atitlan area and in Mexico. And I, I just felt at home there. The people were so kind and loving and generous, even though they were pretty poor. And that, that was just another eye-opener for me to realize I didn't need money or I didn't need all these props to create happiness. Then I came back to Vancouver, couldn't stand it. And then I was asked to start an intentional community in Victoria called L'Arche. And it, I said yes. So I moved to Victoria and we rented an old house in the downtown area and we started inviting street people to come and live with us people Uh out of yeah people out of prison people out of mental institutions teenagers who'd been kicked out of their homes and I did that for the next three almost four years it was a very spiritual community and it really worked for me at that time because I felt so lost. I didn't really know what to do, how to go forward. Lost in what way? Oh, just because like, of climate? No, well, just because, you know, I was young and I didn't feel like I was part of, of any movement. But yeah. you, you made your own uh, intentional community. So you lived in with the yeah and it was community it was based on uh liberation theology from central america and the radical leftist catholic priests and nuns who were working with the people on the streets in central america latin america so there was a, a link that that grew from there i i helped create the central america support committee in victoria That was probably in 1973, and it's still going to this day. And we sponsored refugees. We did tons of education. 
fundraising and we sent people down to be witnesses at different places where, you know, there were atrocities occurring and, and in the war zones in, in El Salvador. Yeah. You and sent that, them to be a witness there? Why? Yeah, it was a group called Witnesses for Peace. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. So if you witness uh, something bad, like you understand it's wrong and mm-hmm. it changes you? Well, no, the people that went down there were already very radicalized, but they were there to try and protect the indigenous people that were being murdered by by the police and by the government. Yeah. So I felt really connected to a global movement at that time. So this liberation theology, you said it's connected to the church. And Christianity, so they protected the indigenous people? That's right. Because we know the history of Christianity and indigenous people was pretty dark. So was it kind of regretting the Holocaust they caused to do better? No, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say they felt any regret. They, they knew from the very beginning that the message of Jesus Christ was completely distorted by the church. Mm. And so they were there because they believed that that's what Jesus would have done or that's what, you know, Jesus asks them, us, I'm not a Christian, but to live as if we were poor live with the poor, advocate for the poor, and sacrifice our own comfort to fight for the rights of oppressed peoples. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a different stream in the Christianity. Like the stream that um, wants everybody to be Christians and send native to residential school. To re-educate them, and there's this stream that you're talking about yeah. that knows that everybody has a place in the world, and we yeah. need to protect everyone. Yeah, that's yeah. Everything is is more complex than than it seems. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <It's>, yeah, <laughs> that's beautiful. You chose life of being an activist. What does this life look like? Uh, And when did you have this like uh, awareness of choosing that, like really choosing that? Or it chose you? Sometimes you said it chose me. Yeah, it chose me. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, yeah. Once I was able to get away from suburbia in North Vancouver, where I, I, I did go to high school. I, I don't know why I did graduate just because it was, it was the basic requirement. And then mm-hmm. I left home. The day I graduated from grade 12, I walked away from my parents' house. And the world was, yeah, really upside down. It was a crazy, it's always been crazy. This whole place is crazy because this is where people come souls come to work out their karma it's not about perfection (laughs) yeah yeah so that's when i went to central america 
or soon after. I did a year of sciences at college, but I went to Central America. But, but you know you're going to be an activist when you went there? You left to be an activist? Was this yes, your yes. intention? I don't... There's no such thing as an activist. There's only a human being whose heart is so broken that they are responding to the suffering in the world. That's that's what I'm that's what we're doing. What is the biggest success you had from this life of being activist? I'd say helping to start and sustain the Ferry Creek blockade. It's one of my biggest successes. How old you are today, Ersa? So, yeah. I think I'm 68. Losing, I'm losing track. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow, so you were activist since you remember yourself. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's well, amazing. Yeah, I was, you know, I think we're all activists. We're just sometimes so afraid to question authority or get into trouble or we just don't have enough inner strength, we think. But... Mm-hmm. I tell you, I've lived with chronic Lyme disease for probably 40 years. And it's, tr- it's almost killed me a few times. And I've gotten so depressed because I couldn't work. And I was really poor. And I had two kids. And, and I loved my work. I was a creative arts therapist. And wow. yeah. And... <laughs> I think, you know, at the lowest point when I was just like, what's the point anyways of being alive? I can't even take care of myself. I can't be an activist anymore. And then I talked to my little brother, Ross Muirhead, and I was telling him all this stuff. And he said, just, just start, just do one thing every day. And I urge you to focus on protecting old growth forests. And I before that I'd always been more focused on human rights and mm-hmm. you know community organizing and organizing co-ops and helping people. And yeah. so I just I, I took his uh, advice and I, I started slowly you know trying to find out, What I could do, and it just snowballed after being in old growth and well, you know, my first five years, basically of my life, I lived in a very old forest. And then I think those plants and those animals, the intelligence of the forest has chose me to be an ambassador or a, a voice for the survival of. Of its majesty and its magic, its mystery. It's so complex. And I think it's like a full circle for me to be. Yes, and, and, and I think it's linked, like human rights and trees' rights to survive. It's all linked. Mm-hmm. We can't really separate them, like if we don't have the air to breathe and, yeah. 
and the roots to protect us from floods. So, So how Fairy Creek started? Well, yeah, I spent almost two years trying to save the Schmidt Creek watershed, which is north of Sayward. And on the on the north end, well, not end, but the northeast side of Vancouver Island, it's a steeply sloped uh, valley, and it's contiguous with the Sitka River Provincial Park. And it just made total sense to save that valley because it's full of old trees, and it drains into critical orca rubbing beaches of which there's only three, I think, in BC, on the on the BC coast. Orcas need places where they can stop and rest and scrub themselves on pebbles of a very specific mm. size and shape. And I think they scrub the barnacles off their skins there. And there's those rubbing beaches there at the Schmidt Creek estuary those Mm -hmm. are the only three i've heard of in the world but i couldn't get a blockade going up in the schmidt creek because it's very far away from the nearest town campbell river is like an hour and a half away and campbell river's just full of loggers (laughs) (laughs) another community yeah, and I tried to get people from the Comox Valley to go up there, and nobody seemed interested. So I met with BC Timber Sales face-to-face, and I, I pressured them, and I hired a lawyer through West Coast Environmental Law to pressure them to not log the Schmidt Creek watershed, and we were unsuccessful. They... They they went in, yeah, most of it, clear cut, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so then I was like pissed and depressed, and then I waited a while, and then just talking to my brother, he's like, "Well, there's lots of other places where they're about to cut," and so um, I went looking. Yeah, no no scarcity of those ones. (laughs) No, no scarcity at all. No. <laughs> so I, I went out to the Klanoa Valley looking for a forest to save there, but it was all gone, basically. I went out with uh, Will O'Connell and Carol Tootle and then just kept talking about it with a few friends, old activist friends from Victoria who had been involved with saving uh, Walbran and Carmana. And and then we made contact with Deep Green Resistance, and they hooked us up with Joshua Wright, who is the young guy in the States, and he has a lot of mapping skills, you know, technological mm-hmm. skills. So he found, he found TFL 44, where Ferry Creek is. And yeah, and so we decided to focus there, and we threw up a blockade there on August the 8th, 2020. Thanks to your brother, you kept going, didn't fell to depression, even after two years of fight that went down, you keep looking for the right place to save. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you something about something you said earlier. You talked about the fear people have 
to question the authorities. Can you talk more about that and how to overcome this fear? Well, I think the origins of the fear of authority is very deeply embedded in childhood. We're told, you know, by our parents that if we disobey them, we'll be in trouble. And a lot of times we, we did get into really some scary you know, trouble with our parents <laughs> and then at school with our teachers. And so the whole hierarchy of, I call it adultism, that becomes in, internalized. And we grow up wanting to be good and to please other people. And so yeah. it's a bit of a risk to um, step outside of that conditioning and to do something different. What is the risk In Canada, there's not the risk of being shot and killed by police necessarily, unless you're indigenous, but disapproval, losing your job, maybe if you get arrested, yeah, being unconventional. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of choices that we make are very risky. They don't bring us security so A lot of people these days don't really want to go there because they don't they don't necessarily feel any support from society to do that. You know, like you don't get paid to be an activist, really. Sometimes you do. No. But <laughs> it's hard work fighting or going against the stream. But just I love the image of the salmon that is going returning to its own birthplace to spawn and it mm -hmm. has to go upstream and jump over logs and over rocks and waterfalls it often will make it back to the spawning ground to the place where it was born but it takes tons of effort tons of work yeah so yeah it's hard it's risky so how do you do the shift from comfort safety to risky and unconventional way of living Yeah, and I mean, maybe it's not everybody's in life, but everybody could make a little shift, take a little bit of a risk every day and do something different, something new to, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's just karma or past lives or... <laughs> But, you know, I'm, I'm a Buddhist. So the Buddha said, apparently, better to be alone than in the company of the unwise. So, that's, yeah, that's what I did for kind of the first five years of my life. I was alone in the forest. I mean, I was never alone. I was learning from the forest. I was learning from the animals and the birds and the air and the sun and the stars and the moon and... I think children um, innately know that they belong to the earth and that they're never alone, that they, there's nothing to fear. And that if, if adults are being cruel to them, they have a place deep within where they can return to and know that they are loved. And that, that kind of love that is unconditional carries us through the hardest times 
um, of illness and death and loss, ultimately that's where we need to be coming from in whatever we're doing is from a place of unconditional love, unattached to the outcome and unattached to what other people think of us. How do we change our programming of attaching to results, being likable, pleasers, and caring what others think of us? We have to rewire our brains away from fight, flight, or freeze. The reptilian brain that gets um, activated when we're children, as adults, it's still operating. And so we're feeling always threatened and we're always feeling fragile because we haven't stopped and faced those wounds from childhood. And we don't necessarily have to go into the content, but we have to feel it in the body and we have to release it and we have to have the support of wise teachers and allies as we go into that deconstruction process, and I call it decolonizing the mind and reimagining who we actually are, you know, are, and realizing our fullest potential, we have to do the shadow work. We have to go back into the traumas and face them. Otherwise, we're spiritually bypassing. And a lot of people who do the spiritual bypass thing, they're all happy on the outside, but secretly they're drinking or they're smoking pot and or they commit suicide either, you know, on the spot or slowly are killing themselves because they haven't had the courage and the support to rewire their brains away from trauma and towards the truth, which is that they are totally lovable. Yes, most of us didn't receive this unconditional love from our parents. They themselves were traumatized from life. But this love is available for each one of us from the forest. Ursa, your skin is white, but your soul and actions are the opposite. How do you take it when you're being blamed to be colonialist white settler? Yeah, I mean, you know, white is not a culture. I'm Scottish. And if I, you know, if I want, I can, you know, yeah, reclaim my Celtic heritage when I have done some of that. So that when someone calls me racist, I don't react. It's there, you know, yes, I'm racist. We're all racist because I was deeply programmed to think I was better than indigenous people as a child. But I don't have to react. I don't have to take it personally. I don't even have to say anything. Or I can say, wow, I'm guessing you're feeling so much grief and loss about what happened to your ancestors and even your parents. And that, you know, I, I don't even have to talk about what they said to me about me. That's not relevant. It's got nothing to do with me as much as it, what it has to do with me is my choice is to give empathy and compassion and to take action on behalf of oppressed peoples as much as I possibly can. Yeah. But do you feel hurt? Not really. 
it's not triggering you at all like you you shift automatically to being compassionate and see where they're coming from I mean sometimes I'm about to you know reply to somebody on signal like I really want to say fuck you you know I've been working my ass off for two years and you're calling me out whatever <laughs> but I don't you know I'll just I'll note it I know I I accept yes there's reactivity and I want someone to acknowledge all that I've done and that's my job I acknowledge all that I've done I don't need that other person to acknowledge it I need to give them empathy because they are victims of systemic oppression and I'm not yeah yeah I mean, I'm female and I'm queer and I'm disabled, but that doesn't really have to factor into the conversation. I mean, it actually helps the conversation because I know what it's like to be part of an oppressed group. And does it help when you say that, like when you share those things with them? No, it doesn't help. No, no. So there's no room for you to bring your story, your experience. You have to be fully for them. Yeah. Yeah. And if I want support, I go and talk to, um, in quotation marks, white people. Or if I, if I want support about, you know, being chronically ill or queer, I go and talk to those people that understand what it's like. So I want to go back to the name calling on signal because for me it's very interesting that after all you've done somebody can still in fairy Creek in this group and after you've been organizing that for two years can still accuse you on that what what can we learn from that well I think you know underneath all that suffering and anger and hatred and rage is just a wounded child. So the same thing, if someone calls me a racist, I can say, yeah, yeah, I'm a racist. I'm not choosing to be a racist. I'm not like, I'm not joining the Ku Klux Klan or anything. <laughs> um, yeah. Or the sons of Odin. But yeah, I was raised by a racist father, that's for sure. In a racist culture. So I ultimately send that person some uh, meta some loving kindness in my own way through yeah yeah since rainforest flying squad got accused of being racist i've reached out to some right and asked them if they would be willing to talk to me and and so far nobody has right and they didn't want to talk to you no which is fine. Totally fine. I don't need, they don't need to talk to me. Yeah. No. So have you ever have a conversation, had a conversation with someone that like, maybe it's not just now in Fairy Creek, maybe before, you know, oh, yeah. somebody's called you a racist? Yeah. You know, yeah, kind of. I worked for the Cowichan tribes and, um, this new guy was hired and he, he didn't, he had a degree in mathematics and he was working as a counselor. I think on the second day he called me racist. He was indigenous. And I, I went to my supervisor and she said, 
yeah, that's really rough. Just ignore him, basically. You're not a racist. He's just, you know, he's just wounded. And he, he's projecting it onto me. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, now it's it's awesome. Just even in the last two months now, because we've been bombarded with all these accusations of being racist, my perspective is changing and I'm becoming even more radicalized about how colonialism is destroying Indigenous people's mental health and how how biased everything, everything is in this country towards white people. And it's wrong and it's sickening. It's disgusting. I'm totally upset about it. But, you know, yeah, we just plod along and, and do the best that we can. That's so beautiful to see how a name calling can be an awakening tool in the hands of the open-minded person. When you are open to listen and open to change, you become even more awake. Yeah, maybe. But I, you know, I noticed it when I, as soon as I went to school, there were native kids. And I, I knew right away when I was seven years old that they were being isolated and no one was talking to them. I noticed that right away. So, yeah, it's horrible. And yeah, and I do counsel white settlers a lot around how to deal with being accused of being racist because a lot of people can't tolerate it and they get really upset and freaked out and they feel guilty and I just help them, you know, work it through. That's been one of the things I've been doing. You still doing that? Uh, yeah, off and on. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. So what, what is the highlight of this process? The highlight is offering that person who's feeling so wounded, <laughs> offering them empathy, offering them support for their own, how they've been oppressed, and mm -hmm. really being pretty strict with them about not, not trying to get Indigenous people to forgive them or to understand them or to like them because that is that's really counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Ersa, you got to know different kind of native communities. You lived with some. Some will accept white openly and some not at all. What is the difference? Yeah, I think it's really on an individual basis. Like when I, I went up to the Unistoten action camp about five years ago, mm -hmm. and I've been around Indigenous people. I've, I've worked for the Cowichan tribes doing counseling, and here and there, you know, it's all on an individual basis. You can't generalize at all because each person has their own different background and depending on, you know, how much trauma or not in a, in a person's background, that's how that, you know, that is um, going to affect how regulated a person is. And if someone is regulated and grounded in their own power and in their culture, then they're not going to feel threatened by someone else that's different. Mm-hmm. 
that's so right. And I find it to be always true that we can generalize a group of people to be the same. Any other tip for white people to communicate and cooperate better with the natives? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's important to take care of our basic need to play. I think it's as important as food and clean water and fresh air and community is the need to play and be creative because that's the direct link to the child part of us. And when we, mm-hmm. you know, also nature, being out with the animals and the birds and the fresh air and swimming in water, or, you know, whatevering, those aspects that that are so much bigger than our egos can be so nurturing and regulating and healing just to allow ourselves that time and space every day to be joyful and to be grateful and to play and just be completely you know selfish I guess in a way or self um it's it's kind of a uh, paradox when I take time for myself and be still and silent and play I feel connected to this huge vast mystery that um is uh, yeah is going to sustain me is going to carry me through the hard times I think the paradox you're talking about is that we avoid being selfish means that thinking only about ourselves and our needs and hurt others on the way. But the complexity is like when, when we forget ourselves and forget that we have needs and we need to fulfill our needs and give ourselves and our body what we need to be happy and healthy, we can't really give others because we're giving from an empty resources. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, also, I just one last thing. I think children get talked out of believing in magic, and there is magic. There is mystery. And the more we can step away from consumerism and individualism and fear and back mm-hmm. into the magic, then the better off we'll all be. In this Fairy Creek series, I recorded more people talking about the racial divide from their perspectives. I'll give you a glimpse from Waya and from Marmar's episodes. So to avoid self-ostracization, these people wrote apology letters and sent them out into the signal groups and were immediately shut down by the BIPOC people saying, your apology isn't enough, we don't accept it, wow. we want you to leave, you do not have the right to be here, you have to go away. It's simply like, you make me uncomfortable to be around and I don't feel like I can communicate with you because you're not accepting me just essentially belittling you and berating you constantly every time we come across each other. It, it breaks my heart. knowing that and seeing and witnessing this firsthand indigenous people trying fighting so hard to the point of tears to try and have their voices heard when they are continuously talked over by white people it happens so much every circle that we would have it's like some freaking white guy has his hand up and is telling them how they're wrong or how we should be doing this thank you for listening to the effective conversations podcast and Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. 
Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet.